Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a busy day already. We are going to continue the conversation on what is happening with TransLink, as well some optimism coming from the mayor of Surrey. Also coming up on the program, we're going to check in with the mayor of Alert Bay, uh, the mayor of Alert Bay, testing positive for COVID-19, and he has no idea where he might have been exposed to the virus. And we're also going to chat with Eric Reguli. He is with the Globe and Mail. He is based in Italy. Some of the stores in Italy reopening today. We'll get a look at what that's like on the ground in that country. But first, as you've been hearing on the news, TransLink facing insolvency soon, within weeks, without assistance. And we heard earlier today from Jonathan Cote, who is the council chair at the mayor's council, and he had some pretty grim predictions when it comes to the future if there isn't help on the way soon. So TransLink is uh, is currently even with the, the cuts that we have made to to the transit system so far, losing two and a half million dollars a day or seventy five million dollars a month. So uh, this is putting the the financial viability of, of TransLink uh, in, into uh, in, into question. And uh, if we don't take uh, significant action or or get support, uh, TransLink uh, does will face insolvency by by June. So this is incredibly uh, serious for for our transit agency. And, uh, and and significant actions are, are going to have to be taken in, in the next short while. Let's bring in Richard Zussman. He is our Global News online journalist based in Victoria. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome, Jill. Thanks for having me. Not a huge surprise that revenues are way down. We know that ridership is way down. It's a bizarre thing when you see a bus go by with the sorry bus full sign and there's only eight people on it. But because of distancing, that's what they have to do. Uh, But some pretty strong language from Jonathan Cote today. Yeah, I think it's staggering how great the losses are. I think everybody expected that TransLink would lose money, but to imagine the transit company being insolvent by June and hemorrhaging cash to the tune of $2.5 million is staggering. And then the challenge will be the decisions that need to be made uh, if emergency funding doesn't come in terms of what uh, lines, what routes are going to be shut down in order to save money, how many job losses that may mean. No doubt the province will have some sort of financial response, but whether they're able to find the $250 million TransLink is asking for, that could be another question. The federal government is getting pressure from all jurisdictions in the country around this issue as well. TransLink is not alone in terms of transit companies losing money. And so the question is whether the federal government can find money to fund what is an essential service and still has a lot of ridership but is losing a lot of money because of reduction in ridership, because of the fact that they need to let people on the buses for free to allow backdoor entry. All of those challenges are putting unprecedented pressure on the company. Uh, We also heard uh, from Kevin Desmond. He was speaking uh, with Mike Smith a short time ago, also talking about the huge losses. We're losing about $75 million a month. We're estimating this year that we'll have a revenue problem of between six and seven hundred million dollars. Our dilemma is we're losing an enormous amount of money, and yet we're providing essential services to the public that really needs transit, and we're doing it in a way that is attempting to enforce the social distancing. So, Richard, does it seem strange to you? And Jonathan Cote mentioned this as well that transit, for whatever reason, does not qualify for the wage subsidy, the federal assistance program. Yeah, I think it is 
bizarre, but that's one of the issues with the federal assistance program. And, and the prime minister has been clear about this all along, that this is a work in progress. We've never seen a pandemic like this before. We've never seen these sort of impacts to businesses across the board. And so there are lots of gaps that exist, and we're slowly starting to see those gaps emerge. And uh, clearly, uh, organizations like TransLink, which is uh, independently run, but uh, under a larger umbrella of government, uh, is one that does not qualify. And that's why, no doubt, this will be something that the province uh, needs to step up and support. But the question is, how much support will the province be able to find? Because... You know, as Kevin Desmond mentioned, as Jonathan Cote mentioned, this is an essential service and people are still relying on TransLink. 75,000 people every weekday are moving through the system. And we also heard, because it's going to be a question... Factor here, oh. play in terms of support. Oh, sorry, your phone line cut out there for a second, Richard. Sorry about that. Uh, one of the issues, too, you mentioned the big question, how much could the provincial government step in or the federal government? Because this is, what, the second request in two days or three days? The city of Vancouver asking for $200 million. TransLink now saying it needs $250 million. Uh, yeah. Interesting, though, uh, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum earlier today, speaking with Janet Brown, uh, said not only would Surrey not be asking for any provincial or federal money to help, he's actually anticipating that the extension the SkyTrain extension to his city uh, is all good and will be one of the first things built on the other side of this pandemic. I'm very confident that it will be one of the major right, projects yeah. uh, when they come to the recovery stage that they will encourage to be um, get going on. I'm even encouraged that they will probably look at the possibility of actually building it all the way to Langley. What do you think of McCallum's optimism? <laughs> I found it hard to believe when I saw uh, Janet's reporting on this, especially the idea of getting it all the way to Langley immediately. The funding is not there yet for that part of the project, but I think what Mayor McCallum is getting at is that governments will be willing to spend on the capital side of things once we get out of this pandemic. That's going to be one of the strategies, no doubt, to help stimulate the economy, to keep people working, to get more people working. And so that capital funding could include those transit projects that there's no dollars attached to yet, the extension to UBC, the extension from the end of the Surrey line to Langley where there's no money yet, uh, expansion of the highway through Abbotsford, uh, rapid transit to Abbotsford, the, the new crossing to the North Shore for transit. like. Those could be projects that we start seeing capital money thrown at in order to stimulate growth. But those projects are a long ways down the road. I'm surprised to hear Mayor McCallum so confident that the city will not have to rely on the provincial government for financial assistance. Municipalities have been hit really hard here, Jill, through closures of community centers, uh, through concerns that people will not be able to afford their property taxes. You know, all of those things with municipalities having very few options to raise money. I'm sure there's a lot, a lot of municipalities, not just Vancouver, that will need help. And, and the province is working on it. I know that. And they're not going to just take, you know, each city shows up and throws a dollar figure out there. The province is looking at a holistic plan on how they can help municipalities. And clearly there will be different amounts tied to, you know, the problems in each municipality. 
All right, we have opened up the phone lines. Star 9898 on your cell, 604-280-9898. And 1-877-399-9898 is a free call from anywhere in the province. Asking you about a couple of big stories today. One, TransLink saying it is bleeding money. No huge surprise there. Uh, But the head of the mayor's council saying that if something isn't done, if drastic measures aren't taken in the form of more funding coming to TransLink, uh, people... People will not be returning to the same system once we're on the other side of this thing. We're already seeing uh, cuts to to the transit system right now, and that's been happening over over the past few weeks. Uh, but it'll it'll probably be a, a month, uh, a month and a half before we really start to see uh, the full dramatic changes to 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 our system. Uh, I think in that time, uh, you know, unless we do get support from the provincial and federal government, uh, this region isn't going to recognize its transit system anymore. And we were all. Also just chatting with the CEO of BC Ferries. BC Ferries has rescinded layoff notices for about 500 full-time employees. Instead, many will be furloughed, but still receive 75% of their salaries, 100% on days when they're actually working. However, uh, we're putting the question to you, do you think governments should be bailing out big companies such as TransLink and BC Ferries? Where should the money come from to make sure those companies still exist on the other side of this? So again, Star 9898 on your cell phone, 604-280-9898. Let's go to the phone lines. And Rick is on the line. Good afternoon. What are your thoughts? Hi, good afternoon. You know, this discussion um, really goes far beyond, uh, far deeper than any short soundbite that uh, someone can come off for 15 minutes or 20 minutes. You should actually think about doing an entire show based on this because so many people are are just wanting the handout without realizing the economic uh, problems that this is going to cost everyone down the road. Now, I'm 55, so my generation is probably going to die off before we're going to be saddled with, with with paying it off. But the millennials and the uh, whoever is after the millennials, it, it is just crazy. I mean, no, I don't think that big companies should have bailouts. I don't think that little. I, I don't think that anyone should have a bailout. Insolvency is there for a reason, and if stuff collapses. Uh, guess what? It will. Um, it will still. Uh, something after that will still come in its place. I. Um, I just think we're. We're. It shows how much Canada has now moved to the left slope of of solutions, and uh, and and really, if anyone thought when they were voting for Liberal that they were voting for something center, uh, um, forget it. it. It is all left and all handouts, and I don't know where it's going to come out at the end of it. So what is the solution then? Just let businesses dry up, let them all fade away, and only the strongest and the biggest survive and go from there? Absolutely. And, and from that, a, a, new, a new growth will emerge. I mean, it's like cutting down all your plants in your garden. You know, you've got nothing, and then all of a sudden stuff pops back. We will rebound, but, but to go into such a hole deficit-wise to, to try and prop up something that may last for a year, I mean, Trudeau's saying that this might go for another year. Like, how in the heck are, are we going? Are we going to be able to support this, or the generations beyond us? I just say, cut it all. If you didn't prepare your six months, like everyone always told you, um, well, you're in a whole world of hurt, and it's not anyone's responsibility other than yours. Um, and and we just bite that bullet. Bankruptcies will happen across the board, um, but. 
people will, will survive. People will still move past it, but we're not going to be saddled with this hole because it's not fixing anything. This is just a stopgap solution, and it's, it's, it's detrimental to the economy of, of the country in a whole, in a in the big picture. Okay, I just have one question. Would you feel differently if we were in a different situation economically? And if you look at our current government, our current federal government, uh, they have been spending and putting us into debt at an alarming rate. In fact, I think if you look at the numbers, the number since they've been in power is almost the same as what we're looking at to deal with this pandemic. So had we had a more fiscally responsible government, would you be okay then with government helping out? Well, the answer, short answer is, is yes, that makes sense. But that's a, that's a pipe dream uh, wish because the reality is uh, governments are going to be what governments are. Um, you know, you've got a guy down south who's just being blasted like crazy, but some of his decisions are smart. Um, so so it, it, it is really, um, it, it's, it's like trying to, to tell you, you know, people should act differently, but human nature is what human nature is and, and political uh, direction is always going to be what political direction is going to be. There's always going to be wasting and spe- and and um, and, and uh, money spent in in places where it gets wasted. And that's as 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 much as we'd like to ideologically think that that will change. That won't. We have to accept that as a constant. Governments are always going to waste money. Um, and this is just uh, over the top. I mean, this is just crazy. All right, Rick, thanks for that. So my point, though, and I get what you're saying, my point is, though, previous liberal governments, if we're going back to the previous Trudeau, Paul Martin governments did not spend like the current liberal government. Let's go to Sam on the line. Sam, what are your thoughts? Um, I could not disagree more with your last caller. Um you know, I, I suspect that his heart is in the right place, but the reality right now, number one, Canada in among industrialized nations has a solid debt-to-GDP ratio. We actually do have the fiscal room uh, to take some decisive action here. And if we don't, if we were to just let, let all of these businesses die off, the depression that we would end up with would cost us so much more money. It would destroy so many more lives. Um, the reality here is that we have uh, we have two bad choices, and we're taking the one that is less bad than the other. And I'm okay with that. All right. Thanks for the phone call. Appreciate that. Let's go to Bob on the open line. Bob, what are your thoughts? I, I agree with your second caller. I think Rick, back in the day, spent too much time hanging out with Timothy Leary. <laughs> I'm as conservative as people come. But we can't destroy the infrastructure, the whole structure of an economy, of a country that, in spite of Justin Trudeau, is still functioning quite well. But I would like to hear government speak of efficiencies. Uh, Instead of just going out for handouts, the the mayor of Vancouver asking for money, demanding money, uh, he needs to be reprimanded by his council. Unfortunately, they're probably as inept as him. But governments need to find efficiencies, number one. We need to support people that are hardworking people. None of this is their fault. I'm doing the same with my company. I have three companies. We have to support the people as best we can. And, yes, we have to use some taxpayer money. But the most important thing out of all of this, and most people seem to be avoiding it, this all started with China and their want for eating bats and rats and pangolins and whatever else. 
And it's okay for them when old people die. They just take them, they put them into the Soylent Green factory, and they redistribute the remains of the bodies. We in the West don't do that. And I want Justin Trudeau, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, all the rest to demand that China make restitution and pay every single family that lost a member, even if they're old folks over 50. All right. And they've also got to make restitution to businesses and the rest. All right, Bob, that's not going to happen. We know that's not going to happen. Roland, you get the last word. What are your thoughts on this? Oh, my God. Bob is uh, really out to lunch. I mean, the, the, uh, the, I'm really sad that transit, seeing what's going on, the ridership down, the social distancing there. Why didn't they reduce their fleet by 25%, maybe even 50%? Because it would have you know, crowded got, the buses and gone and flown right in the oh, face of dis- the ride, distancing. The ship is down. You know, it doesn't say you have to have a bus every 10 minutes to go from point A to point B for your, for your, uh, you know, for your, for your services that you need, your essential service people. I mean, have a bus every hour. Yeah, maybe if that, if that line is, is really busy, have another bus or whatever it is. But the point is, they know what the ridership is. They know what's going on down to the fine-tooth comb of this. For him to say we haven't, we haven't laid off anybody, we haven't stopped anything, is, is, is not understanding the situation that everybody is in. Right. I'm not sure they need $250 million. Maybe they might need 100 Maybe they might need 50 But But not doing anything is tantamount to, like, uh, just a lack of understanding of what everybody has to go through. Thanks for being with us. So we are joined on the line now by the mayor of Alert Bay, Dennis Buchanan, who has tested positive for COVID-19. Mayor Buchanan, thanks so much for being with us. You're more than welcome. How are you feeling? Uh, A lot better this week than I did last week. All right. (laughs) And in the thick of it, how bad were your symptoms? I was really bad. I uh, actually wound up having to go to the hospital and they wound up having to give me two bags of saline to to uh, get my um, blood volume back up. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better and, and on the mend. We wanted to talk to you, though, because it, it seemed strange that you came in contact with this. And I, I know even from what I've read about your experience and what I've learned about this, uh, unless it's changed, do you even know where you were exposed to it? No, I don't. Um, I was doing everything I was supposed to do. I was washing my hands, trying not to touch my face, and uh, I was doing my, you know, safe distancing, doing all that as a civic leader. Uh, you know, people were looking to us to set an example, and and um, I know Chief Don Swanvik and and uh, everybody at the EOC and stuff. We were setting an example, trying very difficult, you know. Uh, to make sure that we were setting the example. And I was staying home, not going down the road unless I absolutely needed to. And I certainly never left uh, Cormoran Island. Uh, but unfortunately, other people are still traveling like everyday normal. Hmm. So it must have been somebody that either visited or went somewhere, was exposed, and somehow brought it back. That's correct, yep. Uh, how concerning is that for you, given that it is such a, po- a small population? I'm guessing it doesn't have a huge uh, medical infrastructure. How concerning is that to you? It is very concerning. Um, we have our community health center. It has a 10 extended care bed and four acute care bed. And my concern is if it gets into the 10 extended care pe- beds, it's going to be devastating for that place. Um, we also have uh, Columbia Court, which is a uh, seniors uh, little complex here 
and most of the people in there have underlying health issues as well. Um, so uh, the reason I did the video was to try and get that point out there that people, anybody can get it. You can follow all the steps, do all your safety stuff, and you can still wind up with COVID-19. Um, and unfortunately, in the community, um, people are still having house parties. People are still leaving the island to go down island shopping. Um, some people either just don't get it or they just don't care. I'm not sure which it is. Hmm. And are you, would you like to see stricter rules then, or is there anything your community... Yeah, yes, or- I, would, I would like to see stricter rules. And um, the, a lot of the mayors now in the regional district chairs for Vancouver Island um, are getting a letter drafted up to send to uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry and, and uh, the Premier and BC Ferries, where we want just essential travel only. Um, and like after this last weekend with the Easter weekend and the people coming over with their, you know, campers and stuff like that to, uh, and going to islands. Like we have limited resources on these islands. We have small grocery stores. And when it fills up full of tourists and stuff, they come in and clean out our limited shelves as it is. So it, it is disconcerting to a lot of us. Did you notice a big increase? Did people visit this past weekend? Uh, well, I've, been in the house so right. um i'm in quarantine at the present time so uh, did you hear anything from from others in the community that there was an increase well i know people are still leaving this island right. <coughs> excuse me to go shopping on the other side so i still have a bit of a cough so you'll just have to excuse me no absolutely um because bc ferries has said that they can't do anything it would have to be a provincial order and I, i'm guessing i mean we did see some other smaller communities stopping people asking people what their business was is that something you could set up at the village entrance or is would that be too difficult no it's certainly something that we can be talking about <coughs> i'm sorry excuse me no it's it's absolutely okay um, i'll let you go because uh, i know you're still on the mend uh, one other message though because again we we talked about this uh, the numbers from bc ferries came back that they were greatly reduced but you're right there are still some people that are going to the islands or people in alert bay who are who are leaving um if we don't get more rules from the province what will you do well we might just have to try and implement our own rules here uh, maybe just go and stand down by the ferry with signs and maybe social shame the people into staying home. All right. Well, Mayor Buchanan, I know you're still on the mend. I don't want to have you stress your voice or or, uh, strain your voice anymore. But thank you so much for joining us and talking to us today. Appreciate it. You're more than welcome. I just hope some people get the message. Absolutely. All right. So we'll get better and stay healthy. And thanks again. Thank you very much and stay safe. Well, a bit later on in the show, we are going to check in with a teacher to find out how online learning is going so far. A lot of people uh, talking about the challenges with that and how they are adapting to distance learning. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about safety. And with more and more people, particularly students and younger children, going online, how do you make sure your kids are safe and they are not being targeted by cyber bullies or others that try to reach out and connect with somebody when they shouldn't be. Well, let's bring in Linda Annis, Executive Director of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. Good afternoon to you. 
Good afternoon to you, Chael. Uh, this is uh, something that I'm sure a lot of parents have been thinking about and talking about. Crime Stoppers has put out a release with some tips on what parents can do to make sure their kids are safe online. What would you say the number one thing is? Well, I think it's very important to monitor your kids' activity when they're online to make sure that they aren't being cyberbullied or that their privacy isn't uh, in jeopardy. And are there things people, I would imagine people are doing that anyway. Are there, there added measures or increased measures people can take? Well, I think to really sit down with your kids and talk it through with them and make sure that they know that pictures that they're putting up, things that they're putting out there, uh, can be a criminal offense. You can't be intimidating or harassing others. Um, it's uh, a bullying pattern that stays with you for the rest of your life. It's not like, you know, the old-fashioned bullying that you had in the schoolyard as a kid. This is with you 24 hours a day and um, will stay you throughout your life. If you're putting up pictures, you have to be mindful that, you know, future employment could be at stake if you're putting things up that aren't appropriate. And is that the main concern now with such an increase that children and teens are seeing likely in in some cases as far as online time? Uh, Is the main concern what they might be posting or is it that they might become victims of a cyber crime themselves? It's both. I think it's really, really important that um, kids and adults, for that matter, don't send out mean, threatening emails or instant messages. Uh, They don't put up embarrassing photos of either themselves or others. And, you know, creating websites to make fun of others, too, is not on. Um, We all have a little bit more time on our hands now and are likely spending time on our screens. And we have to be very careful about what we're putting out there and about protecting our privacy. We should really make sure that our privacy settings um, on all of our social media platforms are secure so that we're talking to only those that we want to talk to and not inviting intruders. Uh, And what happens if somebody is already in the position where a child or a teen has become the victim, say, of bullying? I know in a lot of cases it can be embarrassing, uh, but if they have come out to a parent or to somebody they trust and told them, what do you do at that point? Well, parents should document any bullying activity that their child or themselves are, are facing. Uh, They should also report unwanted text messages to their telephone service provider or cyberbullying or social media uh, sites as well. Uh, If um, there's bullying and it's coming from school, they should make sure the school administrators know. And in some cases, it's gone way over beyond just bullying. And if it's a criminal offense, such as a threat or assault or harassment or sexual exploitation, they should report it immediately to the police or to Crime Stoppers. And are there heightened concerns as well in that we're seeing more and more people use different platforms to have meetings with numerous people, use different apps, and we've seen, unfortunately, those sites being hacked. Are there also concerns that perhaps online learning sites and places where people might not have ever used them before, that those are also the targets of hackers? They should check in with whoever is setting up these meetings to make sure that the appropriate private settings are in place. Uh, we have heard all sorts of uh, stories about you know, meetings being interrupted by people that weren't invited to the meeting. So it's very important that you have uh, your privacy settings done. And what about reporting people uh, to Crime Stoppers? We often talk about that when it's a criminal act. Uh, with something like this, though, is Crime Stoppers involved even before it gets to that point? 
Well, if someone suspects that uh, there's criminal activity involved, they should call Crime Stoppers or the police. If they call Crime Stoppers, they remain anonymous, so no one knows who it was that reported this activity. And in order to reach Crime Stoppers, they would just dial 1-800-222-TIPS, or they could visit our website, uh, www.solvecrime.ca. All right. Uh, Very, very good advice. Uh, Linda, while I have you on the line, I hope it's okay. I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Uh, After we'd reached out to to you to come and talk about this on the program, uh, we heard from Doug McCallum. He spoke with uh, Global News reporter Janet Brown uh, talking about the SkyTrain extension in Surrey. Uh, You are also a Surrey City Councillor. He is optimistic, saying Surrey won't need to ask for any kind of financial help. And not only is he optimistic that the SkyTrain is going to continue, he thinks that it's going to be one of the first projects green it and will actually continue all the way to Langley. Well, how do you respond to that? Well, we know it's not going as far as Langley for sure, not in the immediate future. Uh, it is right now on the books as part of a 10-year plan. Uh, right now, SkyTrain is only scheduled to go to 168th uh, on Fraser Highway, which is very disappointing. It's four stops and an awful lot of money. I think we need to be thinking uh, about that and also about the transition uh, to the Surrey Police Department. Uh, there's $129 million that has been allocated for that and we need to be pausing and thinking about what we can do to help the residents and business survive this pandemic and economic crisis. Uh, do you think Surrey is in the, in the position where unlike Vancouver, which has already asked for $200 million, Surrey won't need to ask for, for funding? Well, I think what we need to be doing is supporting our residents and businesses. We need to be putting money back into the community uh, to get uh, to fuel economic growth once we're through this pandemic, um, not spending money on things that we can maybe wait a while if indeed or even needed to take place. Uh, we're all in this together. We need to help our residents of Surrey and not uh, be worrying about projects that uh, aren't going to create a significant amount of employment or economic growth or financial relief for our residents. Uh, and what, what would be an example or what do you think the city should be doing as far as supporting businesses and residents? Well, one thing that I have been advocating for uh, for a few weeks now is deferment of property taxes. Uh, currently, all businesses and uh, residents' property taxes are due July the 2nd. We know there's a tremendous unemployment issue and businesses are suffering as much as uh, 70% in revenue and that's even if they're able to keep their doors open. We need to be giving them a deferment to December 2nd, uh, 2020 with no penalty. I think that's a really good first step that we need to be doing so that people aren't paying penalties on their taxes or panicking because they don't have the money to pay taxes right now. Do you know of any businesses in Surrey that uh, have been forced to close? Uh, there's been several, and I, I won't name any specific ones, but you can go up into the Grandview Heights area or into Wally area. There's restaurants that are closed. There's small businesses. Everybody's um, uh, feeling the pinch right now economically. Uh, sorry, and, and sorry, do you know of any, though, that have closed permanently? Uh, I do know of some, uh, and I can... Uh, would prefer not to specifically call them out. Sure. Uh, you know, that's not my job. I feel that uh, we need to be supporting the businesses that are still open and helping those ones that maybe have thought that they needed to close permanently so that they can reopen at some point again. All right. So we will leave it there. Uh, Councillor Annis, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure.
All right. Uh, Linda Ennis, she's also the executive director of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. So we were talking about keeping kids and teens safe online. Well, it has been a few weeks since students started participating in distance learning. We've been seeing anecdotally from a lot of parents on social media, uh, some rising to the challenge, perhaps a little more seamlessly than others. Some saying it is a challenge indeed. But what about teachers? Well, let's check in with Jessica Seltzer, a social studies teacher at Rockridge Secondary. She's joining us on the line now. Jessica, thanks so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Uh, So what grades do you teach? Uh, This year I have uh, grade 9, grade 10, and grade 12. All right. And Rockridge, is that in West Van? It is. It is. All right. So what has it been like for you? We know that school wasn't cancelled, in-school teaching was cancelled. So what does that mean for you? Um, Well, the main challenge that um, all teachers are facing is that what we normally do is not recreatable online. All of that collaborative learning and inquiry learning and experiential learning and debates and simulations, it's just, it's not something that you can do. Um, And our our, our teachers, I mean, we... Our curriculum takes years to curate, and we're having to change it entirely. With We had about a week turnaround at the end of March break and deliver it in an online forum that we're not experts in. So, I mean, um, we're having to be pretty flexible, um, and it's uh, it's a lot. I I would imagine, because it'd be such a difference, too, in that, uh, like I said, I've been hearing from parents, I know a lot of parents that have younger kids, where that type of schooling, yes, there's a curriculum, but really, the really young kids, it's about structure, it's about routine, Mm. it's not so much about what you're learning, whereas in the grades you teach, it really is more about what's in the curriculum and what's, what's in the lesson plan, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Um, And I know our seniors are very stressed out right now about university acceptance, what third term grades not only mean, but how they will be reported. And um, we're just having to take everything um, really case by case and day by day. Um, But yeah, part of the problem with curriculum um, is um, what it becomes what is essential. You know, what do I cut? The ministry guidelines say two to three hours of learning per day. But for a high school kid, they have seven courses that meets two to three times a week. We did the math and I have to cut about a third of a normal sized unit. Um, And that can go down kind of a dark rabbit hole of a philosophical discussion of what is significant, significant according to who, to what extent. I mean, everything in social studies is a spider web of connection. What, what do I let the children's drop. Right. Like, do you take a specific piece out of history and that's yeah. that's suddenly not part of the plan? Or yeah, that, I can imagine that would be, uh, yeah, how do you make the decision? Um, a lot of collaboration um, with within the department. Um, we're doing a lot of that. And for your students then, on, do they, does everybody have the, the technology that they need to do this? We're very lucky in West Vancouver. Um, it's a it's a different kind of a district. So most of the kids in the, are in this privileged area, um, and they do. They have they have Wi-Fi. They have their uh, their computers. Our school, I think, had to loan out a couple of Google um, Chromebooks. Um, but we just we don't have the same issues as other districts regarding access to technology. Because that's what I was thinking too. Imagine having to do this, and then say if fifty percent or seventy percent of your students don't even have the technology to do it. I can't imagine what teachers are doing in that scenario. Yeah, neither can I. That that would be um, four times harder than what we're doing here. Um, so my heart goes out to those teachers who are um, 
Um, I, I've heard um, that some some schools are leaving materials out in basically rubberneck bins um, outside the schools for parents to drive by and pick up. I mean, it's each school has their their own unique challenges, um, and I think that that's something we have to really remember um, is not to get lost in the academia and have compassion for these kids and be mindful. Like families are are struggling, and we don't know what is going on in each of their homes, how they've been affected by the pandemic, the recession. Um, so their level of engagement might be totally different to what we're accustomed to. And it is a, a special time, whether you hated high school or loved high school, no matter what, it is a very special time. It really is a gateway in your life. And I agree with you. We got to, these kids might, on the one hand, where it's easy to think, oh, they get an extended holiday. There are a lot of kids in grade 12, particularly, I think, that they were looking forward to this and looking forward to graduating and going to university. And now that's mm-hmm. all been disrupted. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I have um, seniors who have, um, you know, contacted me just, I think, just because they wanted to lament somebody who understood. And they're 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 sad about, you know, are they going to be able to walk across the stage at graduation? And that's a huge deal for them. And so, so getting back to the grades, then, have you been given direction on what the, the learning, if, if we get through the learning process, you figure out what, what to omit, what to keep going, and, and you're able to do that. Have you been yeah. given direction on how you're marking or how you're grading or how the students are getting their final grades? Um, well, the main thing is you can't punish kids academically for a global pandemic and recession. <laughs> that's, that's sort of the, the key point. Um, An assessment has been an ongoing discussion um, at all levels. Um, I don't, we don't know what our report cards are going to look like in June yet. Um, But our main thing is that um, every kid is case by case. They are expected to continue showing their learning. And right now, if they're not, um, our administration and counseling teams are are just trying to figure out what is going on um, in that home to see if the kid is okay so, yes, I am doing assessments. Um, there is grading. But what that looks like in June for a final grade, um, that is something that um, is still being discussed. And I, I know that the, the deadline is kind of a rolling deadline. Does anybody think that school is going to start again? Um, we haven't heard that from our administration. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I also don't know with, you know, um, we're supposed to be keeping social distancing. I mean, how an elementary school teacher would manage to keep their kids, you know, socially distant in a classroom when you have 30 kids and we're all jam packed. in? I, I, I don't know. I'm honestly having to take it just day by day. Which I think is, is what everybody is doing for sure. Yeah. Uh, what about teachers? Are teachers kind of supporting each other? Because this must be all new territory for you and, and your colleagues as well. I'm so grateful um, for the school that I'm at. Um, we're just, we're, we've been so collaborative, so supportive. Um, we've been doing um, like these virtual Google meetups. We have our staff meetings um, online and it's just been nice to, be able to, you know, pick up the phone and talk to a colleague and, you know, work things out and just have a space that you recognize to, to talk to somebody else who actually gets um, the challenges that you're facing at home with, with work. And, and about parents, too, I would imagine you've been communicating and trying to explain and keep them up to date. Mostly I've been communicating. I mean, I have teenagers, right? So right. I, I mostly communicate with the teenagers. I've had a couple of parent emails, but mostly it's teenagers who are asking questions, um, mostly just about technology, about, uh, the, you know, they can't find the button to submit an assignment or or something like that. It's, it's all been... Um, 
yeah, it's, it's mostly just been about that. I haven't really talked to parents all that much. All right. Well, I know it is a very a strange waters we are navigating right now. Jessica, we'll leave it there. We're out of time, but thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. All right. That is Jessica Selzer, a social studies teacher at Rockridge Secondary in West Vancouver. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, you've been hearing about the outbreak at the Mission Institution, and we are expecting an update on that this afternoon as well. Guards are calling for inmates to wear more masks and for a freeze on all staff movement as the outbreak break at that prison grows. So now we are joined by Sav Baines, Regional Director for Health Services for Correctional Services Canada. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I know that there have been some concerns raised about prison workers, the safety of prison workers, uh, given the COVID-19 pandemic. What is the biggest danger you see right now uh, facing federal prison workers? Um, so right now, of course, we are very concerned for those that have uh, tested positive, uh, whether that be staff or uh, the inmate population. Uh, we've taken the appropriate measures to um, ensure that the spread uh, does not go any further. Uh, currently, we do have enhanced cleaning taking place. We have uh, parameters about doing active screenings at our uh, front gates, uh, and we continue to work with the inmate populations to make sure that they're medically isolated and um, and uh, in monitoring their health. Um, um, for our staff, uh, we've provided the, the personal protective equipment for them, um, and we're going through extensive training to ensure that they are uh, using it appropriately. Um, but our thoughts are with uh, those that have been um, uh, diagnosed as positive uh, uh, COVID, um, but we continue to take the, the necessary steps to working with the local health authorities to make sure that preventative measures are in place. Is there enough equipment for the workers and for those that are being housed in the prisons to make sure there isn't? Is there enough for everybody? Uh, currently, there is uh, no shortage of supply. Um, like the global community, we continue to work with supply chains to ensure that uh, protective equipment uh, is available. Um, and we provided uh, the protective equipment to not only staff, but the inmates at Mission Institution. Um, and we continue to procure more and more. Um, but uh, we, having, uh, we are having success in, uh, in uh, ensuring that our supplies are well and, uh, and we can provide this equipment as required. Uh, so with the number of inmates, and I believe it's six corrections officers at the Mission Institution that have already tested positive, was that because there wasn't enough equipment or, or the protocols weren't in place to begin with as far as trying to stop this virus from spreading? So the onset of uh, symptoms is what we work with, and the, the moment we um, detected uh, uh, symptoms, uh, we took the necessary steps of medically isolating the inmates, uh, working with an ex- exhaustive tracing process, uh, which entails working with uh, staff, inmates, um, identifying close contacts, and making sure that those that are experiencing any symptoms whatsoever are not uh, reporting to work. Um, in addition to that, we're making contact with anybody that uh, would have been in close contact um, and working for that dialogue to to ensure that uh, if they need to get tested, they are, um, or they go into isolation, or if they're asymptomatic, monitoring them on a daily basis. Uh, And is there any concern then with the corrections officers uh, testing positive or going into isolation? Is there a shortage of staff? 
Uh, right now, uh, of course, the principles of having staff that only work at mission institution, rather be healthcare or correctional staff, um, should be reporting to work. Um, obviously, we have essential framework that we are uh, uh, um, uh, have to use to provide the, the services that we do at an institution. Um, and uh, right now, uh, we are working at our regional perspective to make sure that we have staff uh, in place. Uh, but of course, we've taken the necessary steps uh, based upon the guidance of the Public Health Agency of Canada to reducing the footprint at mission institutions and all across of all of our institutions across the country uh, to, sure, to ensure that only essential workers are reporting to work. Um, and obviously, uh, when we do have staff shortages, we look at uh, other avenues uh, of offering overtime. Um, and as a last, last, last res resort, we might ask another institution to provide uh, staff. However, we, uh, of course, provide them with their personal pr protective equipment uh, while at on-site. Right, because it was my understanding that much like in long-term care facilities where the province has now said uh, that workers should work at one facility only and not move around, and I get that's provincial, but on a federal level, uh, from what I understand, uh, the union as well has been, say, has been calling on management to put a stop to the movement of any staff between institutions to try and stop this. Yeah, so the principle of only working at one site absolutely applies to CSE as well. Uh, we've worked with them on those parameters, um, and w uh, of course, uh, that is our focus. However, there are times when essential services uh, are, are required to be delivered uh, as an operation that operates 24-7. Um, and uh, as a last resort, we might ask uh, another staff member from another site to report in order to maintain the service delivery. However, the principles of one staff working at one institution are, are very much our focus, uh, and we continue to pursue that as long as we have the staff. To, to conduct the essential services at every institution. So that direction has gone very clearly to our management teams, and that's the framework that we're working with as well. And is it protocol now that all inmates also wear masks? At Mission Institution, that is the, the, the protocol. We've uh, provided uh, the masks uh, not only to the inmates, but to, of course, uh, the protective commit to our uh, staff as well. And so is it even if an inmate is in the cell, it's not if you're, you're in contact with a, with a corrections officer, is it all the time inmates even in their cells must wear them? So right now, what we're asking the uh, staff, obviously, and inmates to do is that when they not when they cannot maintain um, the 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 parameters of social distancing, they have to be wearing their masks. Um, the inmates are currently medically isolated in their cells, but they are coming out for uh, showers and making calls to their families as well, because uh, obviously we want that to, uh, that uh, dialogue to take place with their families. Families are very concerned at this time, and we want to make sure that uh, this contact there. But to the parameters of anybody that is in close contact with each other, they have to be wearing PPE, uh, the pre pre preventive uh, protection equipment, um, and making sure that social distancing uh, parameters are uh, maintained. Because how challenging it is it in a prison environment when you do have staff and inmates that, that would inevitably be closer than the two meters, whether it's at mealtime or, or other times, like you said, when inmates are going to use the phone, it's got to be pretty challenging. Um, it, of course, the correctional environment, uh, the, the, the principles that uh, we see in the community are catered to a correctional environment. Uh, however, those, uh, those principles uh, are what we work with as well. The local health authorities guide us, um, and the, uh, the Public Health Agency of uh, Canada guides us in, in implementing those um, directions that we've seen for the larger community into a correctional environment. 
um, and the key is that the close contact would be the two meters um, as well as uh, uh, if uh, that, those two meter contact was um, uh, above the 15 minutes that we would expect as defined by what a close contact would be. It's a challenge, uh, but however, we've put in place um, parameters about, uh, of course, reducing the footprint, uh, which allows for greater social distancing. We've taken the measures to ensure that staff um, are separated uh, and working in zoned environments. Um, and of course, the inmate population, we've uh, uh, consulted with the inmate and wellness committees to get that message out. Uh, we've given um, various directions about social distancing. And even though um, the correctional environment uh, and infrastructure uh, is a challenge, we continue to use social distancing as best as possible. And that's where the preventive equipment plays a huge part in making sure that that's being utilized uh, if at any time the social distancing cannot be maintained. And has there been any uh, update on temporary release or early release of some of the inmates? Um, absolutely. That dialogue uh, continues. Um, of course, the Correctional Service Canada is taking that uh, uh, um, uh, initiative through a very compassionate lens to identify in our institutions uh, and looking at po- population profiles of inmates to look at those that are medically compromised, that are vulnerable. Um, through that lens, we've developed uh, uh, a mechanism to track. Um, of course, we have to work with the Pro Board of Canada's decision maker uh, to looking at the framework of a release. Um, and we continue to dialogue with our community partners because individuals uh, may be released out to the community and we need to make sure that they're safe. And of course, um, that, uh, that uh, process is still ongoing. Once that dialogue completes and the framework is set up, we will be moving towards that as well. Thanks for being with us today. Coming up this half hour, we are going to open up the phone lines. Uh, You heard it in the news there. Many businesses are closed. We already know that. But that is apparently attracting some criminals. Vancouver police saying 40 suspects arrested. We're going to ask you, should there be tougher penalties for anybody caught looting during a pandemic? But first, we take a look at things internationally. Yesterday on the program, we were chatting with Shane Woodford about some of the easing of the restrictions in Denmark schools for kids up to grade five, I believe it was, reopening slowly and being very careful to make sure that doesn't lead to a second wave of the virus. Well, we're also seeing some businesses opening in Italy, one of the country's hardest hit by the virus. So let's check in with Eric Reguli, the Globe and Mail European Bureau Chief, who joins us from Rome. A pleasure, Jill. Uh, but wanted to talk to you because uh, we checked in with you uh, a few couple of weeks ago about the measures that were in place in Italy, uh, unfortunately, the growing death toll at that point. Uh, but uh, we understand uh, things are starting to return to some level of normalcy, and there has been uh, quite a lot of change there. What have you been seeing? Well, actually, no, Jill. I wouldn't say we've returned to normalcy at all. Um, Okay, but let's start with the good news. The good news is the number of fatalities is coming down. So late last month, we were close to 900, 1,000 a day. Uh, Today, for example, it was 602 fatalities. Yesterday, 566. So we're down several hundred. The new cases are also coming down. And the number in ICU in the hospitals is also down. So, So the trend's going in the right direction. But the numbers are still tragically high. We in Italy, we lose more people every day than than Canada's lost in total. I mean, think of it that way. Um, so some measures are coming off today, but it's it's minor stuff. It's 
uh, bookstores, stationery stores, and bizarrely, children's clothing stores are allowed to reopen today. That's it. Which does seem like a bit of a strange list, and I'm glad you were able to update us with those numbers, because you're right, even though those numbers are the trending in the right way for Italy, they're still huge numbers when you compare it to some other countries, including Canada. Uh, Do you know why the decision was made to open those businesses? I can't figure out the children's clothing one, why children's clothing clothing and not other clothing stores. The, the, The paper stores and stationery stores make sense to me, because... Uh, you know, pretty because everyone's running businesses from their house now, and you need stuff. Even I need stuff. You know, I need pens and notebooks and that. So that makes sense. Also, uh, Jill, these are small shops in Italy. You don't have big box stationery stores. They're usually little shops, and you can control the crowds. You can allow one person in at a time. So I get that. But nothing, the lockdown is still very firm until at least May 3rd. And then it's going to start to open up more. But I'm not convinced the government's got the right strategy. It seems to me premature, given how high these numbers still are. It does. And even though, like you said, places where they can really control the number of people and who's in the stores, are those businesses opening as well in, in like the Lombardy region and the regions that have been even hardest or the hardest hit areas? It's national um, so far, um, and that's one of the things I'm confused about. Why isn't it regional? I'm in Rome, and the number of cases in Rome and the area around Rome, it's, it's called Lazio. Um, the cases are, are relatively small. There's been, you know, a few thousand cases as opposed to, you know, 100,000 up north. I mean, it's not even comparable. So I don't understand why the government's not allowing you know, the least hard-hit regions to open up before the northern ones. Now, it may end up going that way. I just don't know. Hmm. Uh, but the number of cases, too, then, the numbers I'm looking at, uh, there have been more than uh, 159,000 cases, uh, more than 20,000 deaths. Uh, that just seems uh, like such a large toll. And I guess that's why, why it does seem strange that the country is already taking these steps to reopen these businesses. Well, as I mentioned, they're, they're pretty small. They're baby steps, I would call them. Um, but you've got to understand that, you know, Italy is an industrial country. It's the second biggest manufacturer in Europe after Germany. I mean, much bigger than Canada in terms of manufacturing. And there's a lot of pressure to get this economy reopened. Italy is close to bankrupt. It doesn't have the financial firepower of of Germany or even of France. So the longer the lockdown um, extends, the greater the chances that this country is going to, re- that will re- have to receive a sovereign bailout, as Greece did um, a few years ago. Or even, I mean, there's even talk that it's so bad that Italy might have to leave the euro and start reprinting the lira. A currency that would be its own, that it could devalue. I don't think it's going to go that way, but the fact that people are even talking about it is just quite distressing. So, uh, but, you know, at the same time, they, get, they, they realize they can't, uh, you know, open the economy and shut it down again if the pandemic returns with a vengeance. Right, and we're even seeing that in some other areas as well, uh, such as Denmark and places saying they're they're cautiously going to start reopening things, but warning also of that second wave. Yeah, exactly, and um, um, and I think it's a real possibility if they move fast, which is why I think 
that they will have a second second thoughts about reopening this economy in in May. Uh, it'll have to be in very slow stages, and not before every citizen has ample supplies of masks. It's impossible to buy a mask in Italy. Impossible to get hand gel. Uh, luckily, we stocked up beforehand. And also, the most important thing is rapid testing. I mean, you know, if you have rapid testing that's ubiquitous, easy to use, cheap, available everywhere in pharmacies and that, then I can see taking chances. But right now, I, I just, you know, I think any talk about reopening this economy is, is fully uh, is premature. Hmm. Uh, when we talked to you before as well, uh, you'd mentioned it was still quite civil going to grocery stores and stocking up, getting supplies and that. Uh, is it still much like that as far as you can go to those stores? And I'm guessing now uh, the other stores that are reopening the bookstores, stationery shops and such? Um, well, the stationery stores and bookstores um, just opened today. I haven't been to them. But look, it's very civilized here. There, there is national unity um, very few people are breaking quarantine because they're afraid to. Uh, the supermarkets are still very so I was at a post office today because I had to get the piece of mail out, and it was controlled access. Everyone had screens and face masks, and when I finished at the counter, someone came by and actually desanitized the counter as soon as I left. So that, those are the measures going on. No signs of hoarding. Now, having said all that, some people in southern Italy, which is very poor compared to the rich north, are getting desperate. And there have been sporadic reports of violence and the hijacking of, of food trucks, but just very, very few. But, you know, the fact that we've seen it is is, is alarming. Mm-hmm. And just before I let you go, the, the date of May 3rd, then, that's what they're saying at this point, that most of the lockdown guidelines will stay in place. Uh, but it's, is it your thinking, then, that they will likely go further? So far, it's staged. Uh, it's, you know, you're not going to have, you know, soccer games, you know, with 100,000 people on them, you know, for a long, long time. Um, um, you're not going to have rest- restaurants are not reopening in May and caf- in, or cafes. Um, it's 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 going to be slower. Um, um, it'll be it'll be staged. But again, I mean, the plans beyond May third are still pretty vague, you know. And that's where the frustration comes in for businesses because it's it's hard for them to plan. I mean, who do we bring back to work? When do we bring them back? So it, it's still it's still a bit up in the air. All right, uh, Eric. We will leave it there. But thank you once again for being available and chatting with us. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Joe. Bye bye. Well, as you know, Bruce Allen is a very well-known talent manager here in BC. He also does the daily reality check right on this station. And for somebody in the business, he has a front line seat, a front row seat, you could say, to the industry and how it is being impacted because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, Claire Allen is joining me on the line now, CKNW contributor, to talk a little bit more about this. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Yes. Um, so you're right. Very oh, difficult ahead, to, for you to get this interview today. <laughs> it was very hard. You know, I've been emailing every day <laughs> trying to secure the time. But in all seriousness, for some NW listeners that may not know, I know some people have put have put two and two together is that Bruce Allen is my dad. And uh, and yes, I have when I have spoken to him, you know, it's been very difficult to get a hold of him because of the impact that the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has had on his business. And he has been working around the clock 
uh, because of having to cancel tour dates. And so I've been hearing a lot about this when I've been trying to get through to him and trying to talk to him and being told that he is unavailable because he's very busy. And so finally today, I was able to set up a Zoom call with my dad, Bruce Allen, and ask him about where he was in the world when he heard about the pandemic and what happened next. Brian Adams was going to play Oslo that night. The day before the concert, we were in our hotel room. Oslo gave us, a, uh, we got a call from the promoter and said the government had shut down large gatherings. As soon as we did that, we knew that we were in trouble because the next place was Denmark that was coming up. And we knew that uh, Denmark was looking at the same thing and Sweden was behind that. So we thought with all these places starting to close up and Denmark was making noises that they were, we said Denmark's going to close, Sweden's going to close, so we're leaving now. So in Oslo, we just we didn't even get our gear out of the trucks. We did our trucks immediately to where we could ship it home. Got everybody plane tickets, and they were home the next day. I just wanted to get everybody out of there before they got trapped in Oslo, Norway, or whatever. And my job was just to get the people home. They got home. Our equipment, our equipment got back, and that was the end of that. Hmm. Yeah. So you know they had to move pretty quickly because um, you know borders were countries were essentially shutting down pretty quickly. And so they wanted to get everybody home, make sure their equipment had got home, like you heard. But just like other industries, Bruce says that his business has really been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, it's put a lot of people out of work because all those guys who work for you in, a, in the crew, which is big crew, Buble has 90 people out on the road. All of those people are independent contractors. So they're in trouble. They're out of work. The band guys are out of work. In Brian's case, uh, his band, the same thing is out of work. All these people are out of work. So we try to reschedule as soon as we can. When we knew we couldn't get made done, immediately when I got home, I said, my, the promoter involved thought it might open it because it wasn't, you know, it was April then or March, I'm sorry, in March. And he said, I think this is, I don't think this is going to last that long. But I asked him, I said, you've got to make a backup. If we, if this thing is, gets worse, or does get worse. We got to have somewhere to go. So he started putting those dates which are May, June, beginning of July dates down to October, November. And we held the October, November dates. We got in there faster than uh, most people. We had it done pretty quickly. So, you know, they were able to move those dates, the summertime tours or the summertime dates for their tours to, like Bruce said, October or November. But, you know, there's actually, he explained some of the challenges with moving those dates. When you're into a venue that has a sports teams, and some of them have two, many here have two. Right? Air Canada Centre in Toronto has two teams and, uh, and, of course, Los Angeles and New York and New York has three, four teams. So, I mean, you sit there and you, you they get first choice and they have bump rights. So... We try to figure out how, where to put our tickets, where we should move them to. The one advantage we have is when we go to the promoters and say, or sorry, go to the buildings and say, these are the dates we'd like. And they would say, okay. And they would just put a hold on it, maybe. But our difference was we had sellout shows. So we they were guaranteed to have business. Okay. It wasn't going to be somebody put, taking, a, taking a shot in there to have some a concert and really not put the tickets on sale. Our tickets were sold. So we are postponing it from May and June and moving it to October, November. So that, you know, that that's pretty interesting stuff that they were able to do that, that, you know, I mean, a lot of acts are facing, you know, the, the decision to move things around and, and trying to figure out where they can put their new dates. But it was really interesting because this year was supposed to be like a banner year for concerts, Jill, because mm -hmm. we had acts like 
Elton John going out on uh, for his like goodbye tour. Celine Dion was doing her first international tour after leaving the confines of Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. <laughs> you know, she was out there on the road. And the Rolling Stones were coming back. They had a big show that was announced for BC Place uh, just coming up in May, I believe, that we actually gave tickets away for on NW. So I asked Bruce, what was likely to happen with those big dates? The, the, the Rolling Stones say they'll be back. They are holding dates again in uh, in, in later in, in the year. Uh, Celine Dion, there's no doubt that she, Celine likes to work and she's going to go out there again. I, I know Cher canceled her dates. I don't know where that's going. Garth Brooks had a bunch of dates, stadium shows. Of course, he can sell out a stadium in about 10 minutes. He had to move about three, four stadium shows, but they'll be back. He, he, his uh, company says they'll be back. So I think people are just looking where they can work. What has screwed up a lot is a, a lot of these records were released and these are supposed to, the tours were to benefit the, the uh, promotion of the record. And with these tours disappearing and the record out there, there's kind of, you know, nobody, the pieces and parts aren't together like they usually are. I, and I'm glad you're bringing this up and mentioning this, Claire, because we've even had callers in before when we first started talking about this, and it seems like it was weeks and weeks and weeks ago, but taking issue with that postponement, saying people wanted their money back but couldn't get their money back in some cases. And you asked Bruce about that controversy and about some changes there as well. Yeah, so what you're talking about, Jill, is the story that was broke by uh, Digital Music News by a reporter named Dylan Smith. What he saw was that when it came to Ticketmaster and its refund policy, there had been a little bit of a switcheroo that uh, some people were a little uh, peeved about. Originally, the previous policy stated, refunds are available if your event is postponed, rescheduled, or canceled. That's what Ticketmaster said originally. But then the policy was reworded and put up on their website saying refunds at uh, Ticketmaster, they say refunds are available if your event is cancelled. And that's very important because obviously that doesn't include postponement, which is what a lot of these big acts are doing right now. The dates will be postponed and rescheduled at further notice, I guess, whenever they can figure it out. So, you know, this has a lot of concert goers outraged because some would like to get refunds for the tickets because they may not be able to make another date, a new date. And so I asked Bruce what he thought about that move by Ticketmaster. As I understand it, the gig is postponed. So to me, the gig gets moved. Those people have the tickets and they can go sit it and go there again. But I also know that once the gig moves to this other time, a person can go there and say, listen, I bought tickets. I'm sorry. Because in in May I could have gone, but now you know I I know I'm going to be away. I know I can't. That's not a time I go to a concert. I'd like a refund. There will be those discussions at different bo- various box offices across the country. But as long as the but as long as the gig is still on, then those tickets are good. They're good, and they just move to the next to the next date. I, I don't think they have an obligation to refund. I somehow, you know, I I, I know people don't like it. We, we make sure we're postponed as soon as we say we're, our show's canceled. You know, I, I, we'll, we'll cancel some shows, especially especially what you see canceling is, is festivals. And I don't think a lot of those festivals will hold their tickets on for the next year. I think they'll probably let recoupment come on the festivals. But the, the bands that are going from building to building, they are just postponing it, and I hope their customers will come there. I do see some on my ticket counts. I do see we don't get ticket counts anymore because nobody's ready buying tickets. But you do see from the from my own people that are monitoring it, you do see people getting refunds, and it's like uh, it's small. It's like three or four people, three or four, you know, in a week. It's not big because these people are, want to see the acts, and they'll 
hopefully go for go there when they see it and they and i think i think people are wanting to get out of the house and nothing better than to see the act that you want to see before all this this mess went down yeah he so makes can, <laughs> sorry he makes yeah. a good point unless of course you can't pay your rent and you paid 500 bucks for a concert ticket maybe you want the money back yeah, totally. And as you can hear there, the phone going off in the background, you can understand why it's so hard for me to get <laughs> yeah. a hold of this guy. Yeah. Um, but you, um, so, you know, ticket holders who might be unable to attend rescheduled dates, whenever those dates are announced, who had previously, you know, who previously would have been able to get a refund are given the following advice. Ticketmaster says that if your event was postponed or rescheduled and you are unable to as um, unable to attend, you can sell your tickets to other fans at their safe and simple Ticketmaster resale marketplace. They say safe, safe and simple. Um, so uh, they're going to waive seller fees for fans that created resale postings from March uh, 17th through May 31st. So that's one thing. I don't know exactly how they came up with that date, but that's some of the advice that's been given out right now. I know there are some some issues with um, some uh, class action lawsuit down in the United States regarding, uh, or a lawsuit rather, regarding um, uh, being a, unable to refund a ticket to an NHL game that was uh, was postponed. So there's a lot of issues going on there, and it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the future with the issue of tickets per- purchased for dates via Ticketmaster. Um, but I, I asked uh, my dad at the end, you know, he's been in the entertainment industry for a long time for 50 years, longer than I've been alive. And I, he's, he told me he's never seen a disruption like this before. He's seen his fair share of crazy things being in the entertainment industry, but never anything like this. However, he feels confident about the future of his industry. My industry is, I've always said, there'll be new technology. There'll be new rules about how businesses can be run. But the one thing that will never stop in the world is entertainment. Now, we might be the last to get on a, on a solid footing and, and get going again. But believe me, we'll be there forever. There'll be it'll be entertainment is important to the people. It's an escape, like sports, and uh, I think we have to have that in society. I'm not worried about what our business is going to do. Are we going to maybe stumble along a little longer than I'd like? Absolutely, but I really believe it will be back. All right. Well, that's a positive note to end on. Indeed. Yes, <laughs> a positive note. So if you do have tickets to the Rolling Stones and you don't need a refund desperately, hang on because they'll be back. <laughs>